What does being Ghanaian mean to you? We put that question to Ghanaians across the globe as part of the Akadi magazine's issue on identity. In this episode, we speak to fiction writer Mamle Kabu, author of a number of short stories including The End of Skill, which was nominated for the Kane Prize in 2009, and her book The Kaya Girl, which won the 2011 Burt Award for children's writing. Mamle, who is also co-director of the Writers' Project of Ghana, talks about being mixed race and how that shapes her identity. I'm Mamle Kabu. I'm a Ghanaian-German writer. I'm based in Accra, Ghana. Thank you. So one of the big questions we're looking to explore is what it means to you to be Ghanaian. Yeah, well, I'm mixed race. I was born with a German mother and a Ghanaian father in Ghana. I've always had a mixed race identity as a distinct identity on its own, especially because we, we grew up with mixed race friends as well. Yeah, our mother worked at the Goethe Institute, so there were quite a few other families, mixed Ghanaian-German families that we got to know through her work. So it was kind of a recognizable identity that we had around us from mm. that time. We've also always had to engage with separate identities as Ghanaians or as Germans or as Europeans and learn to sort of be comfortable with those separate identities as well as with a mixed identity. So it's quite complex. My experience has been that you're always identified as other. So when you're in a black country, you're identified as white. And when you're in a white country, you're identified as black. And so as children, we were often called Bruni or Blefonio. We were pointed at and chanted at, you know, Bruni, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. So all that made it difficult to develop a very robust and easy Ghanaian identity because you're constantly being othered, you're constantly being told that you're white, you're, you're a foreigner, you're treated like a foreigner because yeah. that's what they do to foreigners as well. Yeah. So that made it difficult and I think it's taken me quite a long time to really be at peace with exactly what I, I feel that I am and I think that is really mixed race. And when I first became a writer, or when I first started publishing, I identified more as a Ghanaian writer. Mm. But these days I do identify as a mixed race writer because I feel at the end of the day, that is what I am. And I've grown up with the two races and I'm never going to turn my back on either one of them because they represent my parents. Mm. And also because I've lived both in Africa and in Europe and I have learned to live in both places, I've learned to live as a foreigner in both, as it were. So it's not as if I could go to Europe and be a European, come to Ghana and be a Ghanaian. It's like, it's more like be a foreigner in both places. Wow. So that's what I've had to learn to make my peace with. That's really powerful, actually, because I guess some people would assume if you go somewhere else, you're more accepted, but it's the same. Yes, and I think in the end it, it shows you that you have to kind of make your home within yourself. And I've written a story called Color Separation, which comes to that conclusion that at the end of the day, home is not necessarily a place. Mm. Maybe it's a state of mind. Maybe it's the peace that you make with your identity. Yeah. That's what home is. And I think for me, that's definitely what it's been. So you know when you were living in the West, because mm -hmm. I know that some people who identify as biracial, they feel that they have to discard the white side. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you needed to do that when you were in the West? Um, no. I Growing up in Ghana, 
was not like maybe growing up in South Africa or in the United States where there is a traumatic history mm. of conflict and and abuse and it's not to say that there hasn't there haven't been those things certainly with this transatlantic slave trade and its aftermath and the legacy of colonization there has been but in our living memory it hasn't been that way mm. we haven't been affected in our generations mm the way that people in say South Africa or in parts of the United States have in their own living memory or their parents living memory and so that political sense of having to disown one side of yourself or one side of your heritage is not something that i feel um mm. and i don't think it's something that many mixed race people in Ghana feel and i would never do it anyway because for me yes my races do represent my parents i mean i the person who gave birth to me was a white woman and mm. she's my mother and mm. i would never turn my back on her race because she's a part of it yeah um so to me that would be tantamount to turning my back on her and i have absolutely no reason to do that so yeah. and also i am not willing to turn my back on any one of my races just to satisfy other people yeah. i would never do that and the way that i was raised and the place in which i was raised have not necessitated my doing that and the places in which i have been raised or the places in which i've grown up because i've grown up in both yeah um i didn't feel either in ghana or in britain where i spent 10 years that i needed to disown either one of my races i never mm. felt that way mm. and if anybody ever made me feel that way i rejected it i didn't accept it um so yeah that's the peace that i made with myself so just going back to this idea of what it means to you to be ghanaian do you think yeah. that you can define that? Well, since I, I mean, I, as I said, I spent 10 years in the UK. I've never actually lived in Germany more than a few months at a time. So Ghana is a place where I've spent by far the majority of my life. And I think really at the end of the day, that's what's most important mm. in the way that I define myself as a Ghanaian is the fact that I live here and I've engaged with Ghanaian culture. So engaging with everyday challenges and joys of being a Ghanaian are really at the end of the day what make me most quintessentially Ghanaian but also of course my heritage through my father knowing where i come from knowing where my father comes from having known my father's extended family speaking my father's language um is... krobo yes krobo is part of the dangwe family of languages or the ga and dangwe family of languages those things are very important as part of my Ghanaian identity. I should mention that I learned to speak his language later in life. I wasn't raised with either of my parents' native languages. I was raised with English, which was a common language for my parents, but neither of them grew up speaking it really. I mean, I, my father spoke it later on when he went to school, but neither of them taught us their native languages and when I was probably 7 or 8, we had a cousin come and stay with us whom we played with a lot and she only spoke Krobo so we learned it off her and for me it is an important part of being a Ghanaian i always wished i also spoke tree because it's such a lingua franca in southern ghana mm. uh but we didn't it wasn't the language i was spoken in our house i mean i have a passive knowledge of it but mm. i think i could navigate ghana more easily if i spoke tree understanding it helps and i can speak a little bit if i if i really have to um but yeah i think language is quite important in terms of identifying as a ghanaian and also it just changes people's attitude towards you immediately you know um if you can speak like an language you get a different reaction from people so that's that's part of why it affects one's identity yeah. but because of my color because I'm visibly mixed race 
I also experience what one could call racism um, here um, as, as somebody who's often identified as a foreigner. For example, it happens to me quite a lot that people um, jump the queue in front of me at shops and things like that. Yeah. And I think it does have to do with my race. And then also, for example, if I have a, a traffic altercation, like small incidents in traffic, it's happened a few times, you know, somebody hits my car from behind or, you know, little things like that inevitably if the other person's a full Ghanaian everybody's always on the side of the full Ghanaian yeah wow. like the crowd that gathers and so on because if you're seen as white then you're seen automatically as privileged and foreign and so uh, first of all the sympathies are with the the native as yeah. perceived yeah. and secondly if you're white then you're automatically rich so you should be fine so those things are hurtful yeah and those things often undermine my being able to feel that I'm really a Ghanaian. Yeah. So, but I've learned to take them in my stride. I have chosen to live here as a Ghanaian or as a part Ghanaian, somebody who prefers to live here than in many other parts of the world. And, you know, I don't think any condition is perfect. Mm. <laughs> I also have benefits from being biracial. There, there's a lot that I like about being biracial. So... If there are disadvantages, then I, I try to take them in my stride. I also sometimes will say, this is not good. You shouldn't treat people like that. Or I'm also a Ghanaian. The fact that I am lighter skin does not mean that I'm not a Ghanaian. Often people are surprised to learn that I am a Ghanaian. Wow. People hearing me speak Krobo are often shocked. And I often find that there are many people who do not perceive the difference between my color and the color of a pure white person that's really? happened so many times yeah wow. so many times yeah so then hearing me speak a Ghanaian language to them is like hearing um a pure foreigner yeah. a pure white person speak a, a Ghanaian language so that's interesting because I think as a black person also living in the UK I think the perceptions that we've seen are more like it's positive if you're mixed race it's more positive than negative so the examples you're giving me are quite surprising yeah I think it, it really depends and um, I don't know if I could say it's more positive than negative it, it's certainly a mixed bag mm. I mean I've never felt threatened because of my biracial status there's never been anything like that but perceptions and also assumptions mm. and then that sort of automatic tendency to regard one as a foreigner mm. Those are hurtful. There's no doubt about it. And you kind of live with them on a daily basis a lot of the time. But, um, but they still hurt and they still always make you feel like I will never be as accepted as, as a full Ghanaian, like, even though I was born here. Mm. And I've spent actually more time in Ghana than some Ghanaians, you know, yeah. who've lived abroad, uh, probably than, but just the color of my skin, which is something that I can't hide yeah. and I can't help. Yeah. That's like something that automatically brands me to many people as a non-Ghanaian and that can be quite a big disadvantage sometimes. It's interesting because we have a history of you know people coming from different parts of the world, Ghana's history so we have the brews, these types mm -hmm. of names where we know that people have mixed and lived yeah so it's not new but it's interesting that there's still this shock factor. Yeah but I mean the a lot of the European names in Ghana do date from the colonial era mm. and they do date from families that are perceived to come from privileged homes mm. and privileged backgrounds um, and therefore there there are assumptions that go with that that you are privileged you are spoiled you are rich you you don't know what it's like and those assumptions sometimes well they can be painful mm. um, they can be inaccurate 
And so, yeah, I think that association with the colonial era is something that needs to be unpacked more. It's also something that people don't know all that much about. Mm. But I think assumptions from the colonial era have also colored the way that we are treated as biracial Ghanaians. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And there's a master's dissertation called Coco's Daughters, yeah. which I've read. That was quite fascinating. It talked about early generations of mixed-race people in Ghana and mixed-race women and how prestigious marriages were contracted between the early generations of mixed-race women because a lot of the European merchants who came over did not bring their wives. You know, most of them didn't bring their wives. So then the early mixed-race women became sort of trophy wives for, for them. And I'm thinking there's a name that sticks in my head, Severine Brock. She was married to one of the governors when she was only 14 or something. Yeah. Mm. But these women were associated with power. They were associated with power because um, they married into elite families and these were elite trading families and accumulated wealth. And some of their descendants are still quite wealthy today as a result. There are especially mixed race women. There are so many stereotypes associated with mixed race women. And when I read Coco's Daughters, I realized that some of the stereotypes associated with mixed-race women, they are not accidental. They actually go back to that time. So, such as what? Just like the power and perceptions of beauty as well and light skin and so on. After reading Coco's Daughters, I felt that that whole thing about light skin and how valued it is was less about actual beauty than power. Okay. Yeah, because I felt that the elites that were connected with light-skinned people and light-skinned women in that time, that it was the power that was so attractive Mm. to people. It was the power that went with it, Mm. the political power. And that has a lot to do with perceptions of beauty that have been associated with mixed-race women. Mm. It was more about power and status and social elitism and belonging. And so I think skin bleaching, for example, is one of the connections there people bleach their skin to be lighter and Mm. that is considered a beauty brand yeah but i think it's more complex than that i think it's due power as well except that that's kind of being forgotten probably but i think there's a link well just just moving forward to today i mean i'm even shocked that you're experiencing some of these situations like with the car incident you talked about and i was going to ask do you think things are improving or perceptions are a bit better than maybe when you were younger um <laughs> well i recently listened to yasmin helwani's song and saw her wonderful video which says bruni how are you mm. um and of course it's just i identify so strongly with that because that that's really the story of my life and only we know what that feels like because we've had it all our lives and it was so refreshing to see it brought out into the open mm. um, and i think yasmin's song suggests to me that this thing hasn't gone away it hasn't gone anywhere it's still there and there are many parts of Ghana where I can go and instantly be surrounded by children chanting, you know, Bronnie, how are you? Or give me a pen, I want your address. Because you're seen as a rich foreigner that's just arrived. And <laughs> so, you know, especially out of Accra, yeah. especially out of Accra. And because of the nature of my work, I've done a lot of social research in yeah. the course of my work. I've been in villages many, many times in all regions where instantly you get surrounded and the children just see you as a foreigner, a complete foreigner. And then this kind of situation occurs, you know. And what I don't like about it is that I know that Ghanaian children are raised to be very respectful. And even to approach an adult, 
is not something that a child that's been traditionally well raised um, or considered to have been would do mm. and yet when they see somebody who they feel is a foreigner all the rules fly out of the window and mm. then they go and they grab onto their hands and they you know surround them and chant and you know this mocking chant almost mm. um i don't think they would do that to a, what they perceive as a Ghanaian adult because yeah. they would know that that's not respectful and you're not expected to behave yeah. like that and i find it problematic that just being seen as foreign automatically changes the rules that you are it's okay to approach you in a way that you have been taught is disrespectful mm. and that the adults just watch it they don't say hey don't do that it's not respectful um so those are things that have bothered me you know over the years and i don't think things have changed all that much i think that yasmin's song will make a difference i think it will it will it will make people realize hey this is not okay yeah. you know and i don't think people stop and think about it first of all, that this happens a lot. And secondly, what does it feel like to have this done to you? Yeah. And so I think that's like the beginning of bringing this issue out into the open. And I think it's very good. I was very pleased when I watched that video. Yeah. So yeah. And I think in the era of social media and so on, where there's more awareness generally of things like maybe multiculturalism, biracialism and so on, I'm hoping that this will change. And not just that, but now there's so many Ghanaians who have lived abroad that that whole issue of not just being simply a Ghanaian who was born and raised in Ghana and is, you know, and that makes you a Ghanaian or wherever it is. Yeah. Um, I think that issue is just more obvious yeah. and it's not only biologically mixed people who are facing these issues, it's Ghanaians, it's full Ghanaians who've been born here and then moved or, you know, moved and come back or whatever. People like you. Yes, um, yes people <laughs> whose parents are Ghanaian and who have moved um, abroad and the children have been born there and so forth. So I think this issue is now um, far more complex and it's affecting more people than, yeah. than it used to, yeah. um, say, when I was a child. So it's an issue for everybody. It's not just for biracial people. Yeah. Um, and I think that is going to bring in more into the public forum. And I think that's what's going to change things. So I, I hope that in the next decade or two, those things will change. I really hope so. I think there'll yeah. be more awareness of them. Yes. Yeah. Me too. And just lastly, <laughs> I do know that in Brazil, um, being mixed race is classed as a, a separate mm -hmm. identity. Yes. I think in England as well, it's moving is towards it? that. Yeah. yeah. I think it should really. Um, and I mean, even practically speaking, Often when I'm filling out forms for flights and, and for other things, you are asked the nationality. And often on many of these fields, there is only one option, mm. you know, and if you are dual national, you have to choose. Yeah. Uh, and then that can affect whatever it is that you're doing, you know, and I don't think that we should have to choose. I, I don't think we should ever have to choose yeah. because I think being biracial or multiracial should be an identity in itself. So I think that's great that Brazil has that and that Britain might have that as well. Yeah. I think it should just become a global thing yeah. uh, because, I mean, that is how we are born. Exactly. You know, we can't help it or we can't change it. And it is an identity in itself. It's an identity of a person who has to grow up in more than one culture. And depending on how that person's life rolls out, they may or may not engage with both cultures. Yeah. But most of us really do by default because yeah. we have parents of both. both. Yeah. And so, you know, you may learn two languages or you just always, all your life, have to navigate not exactly being from the place yeah. and a household which is a bit different because yeah. one parent is a foreigner um, and things like that. And for me, as a Ghanaian German child living in Ghana uh, with a mother who was running the household and 
had German timing for everything and did all her life. And wow. so that, that was, I mean, immediately, like from very early childhood, I had to face the reality of the tension between two cultures because just on that alone, that issue of timing, my mother was rigid and my father was a typical Ghanaian. Like he prized things like hospitality over punctuality. Yeah. And I think that's something many people don't really think about that way, that being unpunctual is not just a question of being disorganized or being lazy or not caring or respecting about uh, time. It's also about choices that you make and the priority that you give things. So, mm. for example, if we were all sitting around the dining table because it was time to eat, and to my mother, once she had, you know, once it was time to eat, it was time to eat, and a visitor arrived, my father would go and receive the visitor and maybe bring them yes. <laughs> to the dining table, yeah. which was very much counter to the way my mother had been raised, which was that, you know, mealtimes had to be respected. And if a family was eating, you didn't expect an outside to a, arrive at that time because they would know that you don't arrive at that time and be to join the meal because you don't do that. Whereas here we have a saying, you're invited. Like you yeah. don't, you're not supposed to eat in front of people and not ask them to join yeah. you. It's just not considered hospitable. And I think in our culture, hospitality is prized more than punctuality in such a, with such an example. So, so I had to engage with these issues right from early childhood. Yeah and see that they cause conflict, you know, and think about them. And I think that broadened my mind generally to always think around things because nothing was straightforward. And then like going to children's parties when we were little, I mean, in Ghana, when somebody tells you, come at this time, I mean, my goodness, you could come two hours later and it wouldn't be a big deal, yeah. <laughs> you know. And my mother would always take us, like, either on the dot or, like, 10 minutes before <laughs> the time. And, like, the family hadn't even, like, bought the ingredients to cook yet. You know, they were still bathing, and <laughs> you know. And then she'd come and pick us at the time the party was supposed to be over, by which time it was probably beginning, you know. So then we just missed the whole thing and felt awkward sitting around, you know, yeah. all in our party dresses when... And the hosts of the party weren't even ready, yeah. you know, so that kind of culture clash was something that we had to nav navigate from a very early age and live with and learn to figure out. So are you a happy medium of both now? Or? Yes, I think so. I think I can function in both mm. because I lived in the UK for 10 years as well. I know in the UK, in Germany, if somebody says 10 o'clock, they don't mean one minute past 10 or especially in Germany, they don't mean even 30 seconds past yeah. 10, you know, and if you arrive five or 10 minutes later, they look at you funny, like, oh what happened, gosh, you know? Yeah. Whereas in Ghana, if you arrive on the dot, the person's not going to be there a lot of the time. Or if you're, <laughs> Even if you arrive 10 minutes late, it's like, oh, you're here, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so I can do both. Yeah. And I remember pointing out once at a reading that um, the fact that Ghanaians are often not punctual, it's like I already said, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not capable of being punctual. And I said, well... How did all those Ghanaians get abroad if they can't keep time? Yeah. Those aeroplanes, they don't wait for you. Exactly. You know, If they need to be on time, they can be on time. Yeah. So I had to learn and figure out that, that prioritization. And I can do it. I can do both. But yeah, learning to function in both settings. I think that's why I would classify myself as a biracial person first, a mixed race person yeah. first. Because... I've had to learn to do that. And that's not something that people have to learn if they come from either one or the other. Wow. Yeah, and that's what makes me mixed race first and foremost. That is really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to find out more about what you do, your work, yeah. how can we do that? Well, I have a Facebook, a writer's Facebook page under Mamle Kabu. 
Um, I'm also a co-director of the Writers Project of Ghana, the WPG, which is an independent writers platform that encourages writing generally in Ghana, creative writing, and we have a number of different events. We have a weekly radio show. If you're in Ghana, it's every Sunday from 8.30 to 9.30 on City FM, and it's called Writers Project on City. We also have monthly readings at the Goethe Institute on the last Wednesday of every month, 7 p.m. at the Goethe Institute, but they're all live-streamed now because of COVID. Yeah. We also have an annual literary festival that happens usually in the third week of October every year, and it's called the Peja Festival. We now have it like half online and half in person, but in previous years it was all like actually on the ground. Um, so yeah, Peja features workshops, readings films, book selling, and panel discussions. You can find out more about Pija on the WPG website. So what is the website? www.writersprojectghana.org Okay. Fantastic. <laughs> Honestly, you've really educated me and thank us, hopefully. You. So thanks for your time. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> In part two of this episode, Mamle Kabu talks about some of the books she's written, which focus on identity. Thank you for listening to this episode by Miss B. Writes for Akadi Magazine. The music in this episode is called Infitiasi or Genesis and is created exclusively for Akadi Magazine and Miss B. Writes by percussionist Erika Wusu, aka King Wusu and producer Nia Tom Sagar. For more content like this, visit www.academagazine.com and msbwrites.co.uk. Thank you.